Good morning, everybody. This is Jeff J. Brown, known as J.B. West on the coast of uh, Normandy here in France. And I've got my good uh, buddy and partner, J.B. East, all the way halfway around the, the planet in Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. How are you doing, James? I'm doing great because today's a special day. Uh, it's your birthday. <laughs> yeah, but it's even more important historically. <laughs> and, well, it's your birthday. I mean, it's your one life, so it's pretty important. And then also today, in 1975, people might remember Americans fleeing onto a helicopter in Saigon. And I just came from uh, the presidential palace for the famous picture of the tanks bursting through the gates. And I, and uh, the helicopter pad that is in that picture is still here. It's just a few blocks away. And we're going to eventually talk about it. So let's Great. start with the book. Jeff asked me to talk about my book, uh, The China Mirage. This is a follow-up. Uh, thank you, James. This is a follow-up uh, to a show that we did uh, on February 24th called Who's in Charge? How the Fate of Three U.S. Presidents is a Lens on Post-War Democracy. And uh, over 25,000 people uh, watched, uh, listened to, or read um, that show. And uh, James has written four books, and I, th I think everybody out there should uh, should should read them. Uh, they are likely in your public library in uh, the United States or, or Britain or uh, any other English language country. Uh, the uh, Flags of Our Fathers, Flyboys, and then what got James and me hooked up uh, years ago was I read Imperial Cruise and The China Mirage. So all four of them, the, the last two are really focused on China, the China lobby, how China was, how China was um, seen and um, handled by the United States uh, in the uh, in the 20th century. And today we're going to be talking specifically about the China mirage. And of course, the mir mirage is, is the great word for it because, as James will um, uh, point out in, in this show. Uh, we both have, have a lot of respect for Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, but even he, uh, you sometimes, in reading James's book, you sometimes have to ask who's in charge. Uh, and just just like with um, uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, uh, Richard Nixon, and then Donald Trump. So uh, this actually precedes those three presidents who were were taken out of action, and we're back with we're back in the uh, 19. Uh, 1940s with FDR. So um, you write it's just it's just a it's just a great book, and I reread I reread I reread the chapters uh, to uh, prepare for this uh, show. I reread the chapters on this uh, called uh, the War Over Oil, and you write about Washington warriors. Uh, wh who were they, and what defined them? You know the the term Washington warriors came from uh, Henry Morgenthau, who was Secretary of Treasury. And the idea was uh, simply that FDR and his Secretary of State Hull 
we're running foreign policy and they said foreign policy is ours and you guys keep your hands off it. But Treasury wanted to get involved and everyone was excited. Why? You know, we're at war with Russia right now. It's 2023. But you can see that we've been conditioned since 1917 with the McCarthy era in the 1950s and then with the Trump, with the Russia, Russia, Russia takedown of Trump. We've been conditioned to think negatively about uh, Russia. And now, guess what? We're at war with Russia. In the 1930s, there was a committee called the American Committee for the Non-Participation of Japanese Aggression. And simply put, the Chinese noble peasant, as I call him, was almost a caricature. The number one book of the 20th century in terms of sales was Pearl Buck's The Good Earth. And she made the Chinese into these cuddly people that Americans absolutely fell in love with. Best-selling book, movie, but guess what? The Chinese couldn't come into the country. We didn't want to live next to a Chinese. They, it was illegal for them to come. We didn't want our sons and daughters kissing the Chinese, but we loved them at a distance. We loved the noble Chinese peasants. And there's this huge propaganda agency based two blocks from the New York Public Library said, if we stop helping Japan invade China, the war will end and China will withdraw and there'll be peace. China will never, or Japan will never bomb us. Bomb Pearl Harbor, you're out of your mind. Look at the way to peace is to stop selling oil to Japan. Hey folks, do you know that you know, the Japanese war machine that's crunching the Chinese, they're getting their steel and their oil from us. Franklin Delano Roosevelt is feeding the Japanese war machine. We've got to stop this. Now, if you just cut the oil, cut the steel, the Japanese will say, oh, we can't fight the United States. And they'll just retreat to Japan and there will be peace. So I'm simplifying it. But millions and millions of pamphlets went out and they went out to local editors, pastors, heads of Rotary. And all of a sudden you had, you know, Judge, uh, uh, Judge Jeff Brown in Oklahoma giving a speech about, we just have to stop participating in Japanese aggression. And it was as if he came up with that idea, but he was being pumped by the, this committee and pastors and editorialists and there became a groundswell of demand that we cut Japan's supplies. And this ground, obviously, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt appointed somebody as secretary or assistant, they came from the American population. And, the Amer and just like the American population now hates Russia, the American population believed if you could cut Japan's supplies, there will be peace. So Washington warriors were all these people underneath FDR who said, what is it? why is FDR supplying the Japanese? Let's just cut the supplies and we'll have a peaceful world. So that's where Washington warriors came from. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, the, um, your, your account, I just, I was like, I reread, reread this and I was just like, it was shocking um, how, you know, FDR obviously wanted to avoid the war in the Pacific. 
he wanted the oil to still go to Japan. And obviously, we, we will, as we will learn, people underneath him betrayed him and disobeyed him. And um, uh, we ended up uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, war, a world war in, in the Pacific. But your account of Japanese and U.S. diplomats totally misunderstanding each other. It was almost like a Groucho Marx movie. Uh, I couldn't believe it. Due to no cross-language skills is shocking. So we had the Japanese diplomat who Nomura, who was trying to talk with, um, I think it was Hall, uh, the Secretary of uh, uh, State, and the English and Japanese were were almost non-existent, and fatal fatal decisions were made because of gross miscommunication. Did they not have translators back then? I mean, it just seems unbelievable to, that that happened. Where are you going to get a translator for an Asian language? The first course on Chinese was taught in Harvard, I think, in 1934. John Fairbanks. Where are you going to get a track? Nobody would study Chinese or Japanese. Those were Asian languages. Those were loser languages. Even now, it's almost impossible to get somebody who's, who speaks fluent Chinese in the, uh, in the Biden administration. Condoleezza Rice got a degree in, in Russian studies. Who in the CIA can speak Chinese? Well, no, 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 no. You studied German or French or, or if you want to go into national security, it was all Russian. And back then, what kind of weirdo? I mean, you know, you've got to be, let's say, in your 40s or 50s to be able to be in a position of power back in the 1930s. They were going to study Chinese in the 1890s. It was illegal for the Chinese to come in. United States Senate said in the Chinese Exclusion Act that the Chinese brain wasn't capable of taking in democracy. They were, they were people whose brains didn't work correctly. Why are you going to be, who's going to be studying the languages of these loser Asians? Okay, well, that answers that. I, I hadn't thought about that. That's a, that's a, no, they just That's weren't a, there. Yeah, they the, just weren't there, yeah. In, in another part of the book, Roosevelt sends a personal emissary to China, and uh, Madam Chiang Kai-shek translates, you know, between mm -hmm. Chiang Kai-shek and the emissary. He, he doesn't even have his own uh, personal translator. Yeah. China was an unknown, that's, it, the name of the book is The China Mirage. The, the reality about China didn't exist in America. And even today, I mean, no one goes to China. Yes, I know, you know, Joe's uncle went, you know, to Shanghai on a vacation and, and my cousin worked in Shanghai for one year. But in terms of if, you know, I, I, I gave speeches all over the country. People would come up to me, oh, Mr. Bradley, my niece is going overseas to study. And I would say, where, Burma? No, you know. I know where they were going. They were going to Rome, or they were going to London. Or, you know, they're 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 not going to Kunming. So we have very little contact with Asia. When I went to school in Japan in 1974, it was like I went off the end of the earth. <laughs> okay, interesting.
What the the, go ahead. No, next question. OK, next question. The um, an, another part that um, was really and you know, that was fascinating. It wasn't only a problem of the of, of FDR's uh, undersecretaries and uh, lower level people completely disobeying him. But you mentioned and and and, I, and this really you know caught my attention. The War Department stalled sending military equipment to Russia on the in the you know for the for the for the front in Europe. Was this intentional or was it just red tape? Because those delays may have changed history, just like the anti-FDR plot to deprive Japan of oil. Well, you know, FDR had a loosey-goosey administration, and he had it, it was loosey-goosey by design, and that was his style, that people could argue and the argument would come up to him and he would make a decision. And just like, you know, Trump said, let's get out of Syria, and then we didn't get out of Syria. Trump said, let's get out, I'm going to get you out. Obama said, I'm going to close Guantanamo, and Guantanamo is still open. So this is not new. You know, Roosevelt said, let's support Russia. Russia? We didn't recognize Russia for years. The commies? We're going to give things, you know, there was resistance in the bureaucracy. Okay, well, that that sounds pretty familiar. I guarantee it sure does. You have a you, you, there's a whole fa a whole section, really fascinating, where FDR uh, uh, created a secret air force in Burma, which nowadays is called Myanmar, and he tried twice to sell it to the army, and then well, once to the army, and then to the navy. And was rebuffed. They said, you know, no, they weren't, they didn't like the idea. But yet he's commander in chief. So why didn't FDR just put his fist down and order them to do it? Because it was completely illegal. Okay, folks, what we're talking about is the flying tigers. So Google the flying tigers, you'll see these heroic guys led by uh, Claire Chenault you know, are big heroes and uh, they they help the Chinese fight the Japanese and it's just a bunch of hokum. Claire Chenault was, was a nut and he had been drummed out of the Army, U.S. Army Air Force. There was no Air Force. The U.S. Army Air Corps is what it was called. And, you know, he just had crazy ideas. And then he, through, through a bunch of FDR friends, uh, and 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 some Chinese friends sold the idea that he was going to beat Japan with air power. Now, air power was brand new, right? We're talking about the you know late 1930s, and uh, World War One was you know where we saw the first airplanes in in combat. So air power was relatively new and it had kind of a magical quality to it. And here was this crazy local guy local, like L-O-C-O, -O, local, crazy in the head guy, saying, I'll win the war, give me a few planes, and we'll sneak into the back door of China through Burma, and we'll beat the Japanese. Well, that idea sold with FDR and his friends, 
and they took it to the War Department, and it was just, you know, it was a waste of time. Chenault was a nut, and why waste resources on this nutty plan? We're not going to beat Japan with a few airplanes in China. So the War Department uh, opposed it. Well, FDR did um, end up creating this um, secret air force in Burma and uh, outside government channels. And as soon as I reread that, I thought, well, how is this different from Ronald Reagan in his Contras in Central America back in the um, early 80s or George uh, W. Bush's uh, what ended up being 135 um, post 9-11 presidential secret armies, most of whom are in uh, in Africa. Was FDR the, the first president to, you know, quote, to go rogue, end of quote, or were there others before him? You know, I don't know in the 19th century. But I mean, James Polk put troops in illegally into Texas, Mexico, and then declared a border and let's support the troops. And, you know, there was finagling, executive finagling back then. But the first time, you know, air power was used uh, in this... Uh, in this illegal way was FDR because air power had just been invented. Now this Claire Chenault program in China later became the um, CIA's Air America that bombed, still today, one third of Laos is, you can't walk on it because it's full of bombs. And Air America, you know, is a whole nother story, but this Claire Chenault illegal air force grew into this horrible thing called Air America. Yeah, that's true. I've I've been to Laos and I and I've I've seen I've seen the the, the museum there. It's 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 a shock it's a shocking war crime, uh, that's for sure. You know, I was uh, thinking about uh, Churchill because you as as the as the war progressed, of course, FDR and Churchill worked together and and uh, with Stalin. And as I finished reading this, this rereading this section of your book, I, I found that FDR and Stalin, you know, they come across as being men of their word. And and yet Winston Churchill comes across as some as a complete serial liar. And a saboteur. Uh, that's that was my take. My takeaway. What are your thoughts on that? Um, you know, Noam Chomsky has a line that Churchill, after defeating the the Nazis, realized that he couldn't continue Nazi techniques in India, and they had to give up. You know, I mean, there's a whole Winston Churchill's kind of a large subject, but. Stalin ridiculed Churchill. They'd get drunk after their, you know, during their dinners at their conferences. And Stalin was upset with FDR and Churchill because they were too uh, timid to open another front. Look at, we went to war in 1941. How come the United States didn't invade uh, the mainland of Europe in 1942? Stalin was like, hey boys, you know, hey, we got a war going on here. I'm the only one fighting Hitler, uh, my boys are dying and your boys are in North Africa. Hey, Churchill, you know, you afraid, you little boy, Churchill? 
Stalin would get drunk and just berate Churchill for not coming through. But it's a, it's, it's a big subject, but you know, I wrote in Flags of Our Fathers that 75% uh, of the German soldiers who died in World War II died from a Russian bullet, not an American. And uh, nobody has ever criticized that. And many people say that over 80% of Hitler's troops who died were killed by Stalin. So, you know, Russia really did that war and we came in at the end. Mm, I agree. The uh, it's a it's a fascinating it's a fascinating um, account uh, in your in in your book about how people under FDR sabotaged his um, desire to uh, continue sending oil to Japan to avoid a war in the Pacific. But let's just say, let's just play play hypothetical here. What would the history books be saying today if FDR and and Wells and Hall, uh, the people who were supporting him, had been able to keep Japan supplied with oil until the Soviets finished grinding the Nazis into dog food uh, in 1944 and 1945? Okay, let's step back and tell the listener what we're talking about with oil. The chapter is a war over oil. What are we talking about? Japan had no oil. Japan had a huge military machine dispatched to China. Oh, they needed oil to keep this puppy going, to keep the country going. There were only two oil spigots. One was California and the other one was Dutch East Indies, which is now Indonesia. So remember folks, there's only two oil spigots and the best quality one in terms of quality of oil and uh, efficiency of delivery was in the United States, in California. So Roosevelt kept that oil spigot open. And as you see in the book, he says to the public and he says to the cabinet, if I cut off the California oil, Japan will go south to the Dutch East Indies and we're gonna have a world war. I wanna fight in the Atlantic. I wanna fight Hitler with Churchill. I don't want a two front war, so I'm gonna keep the oil supply. And China, Chinese are dying and everybody's crying. I'm sorry, there's no minerals or supplies that China has that we can't get somewhere else. So Roosevelt was just practical. Chinese are dying, I'm sorry, I gotta take care of Hitler first and then we'll get over to the Pacific, but I can't fight a two ocean war, so keep the oil spigot open. But this propaganda was going across the country that was highly emotional saying, you know, we are killing the Chinese by giving oil to the Japanese. So Roosevelt's policy stuck until when? Until Japan went into Vietnam. Why'd they go into Vietnam? to cut the back door of supplies uh, into Southern China. Well, why would we only get excited when Japan went into Vietnam? We didn't get excited when they went into Hong Kong, Shanghai, everywhere else, because Vietnam had things that, that we needed. Tin, rubber, there was no synthetic rubber. 
So the reason that Vietnam was a colony of the French and the reason that America fought a war there later was this. This was the hairspring. This was the, the hair on the camel's back that started World War II in the Pacific when Japan went into Vietnam. And um, I'll just continue the story. Roosevelt was very busy in the summer of 1941. His number one assistant, Missy Lehand, who ran his life, his social life and his executive life for him, had a stroke. And, you know, he's he's got to go meet Churchill up in Canada. And there's a lot of stuff going on. And while he's away, some underlings underneath him, Dean Atchison and some of these other what we would call neocons, shut Japan's oil in a complicated bureaucratic process, but Roosevelt didn't know. So Roosevelt's up in Canada meeting with Churchill. Yeah, we're going to fight the Nazis, and yeah, don't worry, we're not going to have war in the Pacific. And Dean Acheson and Henry Morgenthau and these guys are surreptitiously cutting Japan's oil. So folks, read the book. Here's the amazing fact. The emperor of Japan knew that America cut the oil before the president of the United States knew. I'll repeat that. Your history books all said FDR cut the oil and then Japan hit uh, Pearl Harbor. FDR did not cut the oil. Guys underneath him did. The emperor knew it before FDR did. It's in the book. It's amazing. So Japan had you know, their oil supply cut and they did exactly what FDR predicted. They went south into the Dutch East Indies to get the oil to survive. They had to. So these things cut the oil, believing that Japan would just say, oops, oh, well, we'll just give up. We've been in China for 10 years. We'll just give up because they cut the oil. No, they had to jump off the cliff and go to war with the United States. We forced them into that. And it was all accidental. Yeah. It's interesting that you, as you described how torturous this decision was for the Japanese to feel compelled to uh, go to war against the United States in order to have the opportunity to get oil from the Dutch East Indies, today Indonesia, and I and I was really fascinated the the quotes that I that you some of the quotes that you gave how the Japanese leaders cited the suffering of their citizens as a reason to attack the USA in hopes of getting this Dutch Indies oil. You know, Chinese leaders throughout history often you know brought uh, or even today bring up Xi Jinping and and uh, modern presidents, modern leaders of China, concerns about the people's well-being. And for me, uh, uh, maybe other than a few isolated cases, except for FDR during the the Great Depression, we don't hear much along these lines in the West. I mean, what's I mean, what's the difference? I mean, is is it an Asian point of view to have this concern for the common people? Uh, no, the, the Asian point of view at that point was extreme cruelty to their people. Chiang Kai-shek was running China and, uh, you know, I mean, one of the cruelest uh, Chinese dictators ever. 
the Japanese saying, you know, welfare of the people, that was just total stuff that was said to the emperor in conferences. The Japanese military had secret police torturing its people. The Japanese military was as cruel as leaders could ever be. They, they, the Japanese military leadership sent 110,000 Japanese boys to New Guinea with no supplies. I've been to New Guinea. There's no food in New Guinea. You know, they sent 110,000 Japanese boys. Guess how many returned? 10,000. So no, they they didn't care about the Japanese people, and Chiang Kai-shek didn't care about the Chinese people. It was, uh, you know, I don't think it was Asian at all. I think that Mao just, he was a smart emperor. You got to take care of the people. The people have power. And, uh, you know, the Japanese eventually had better leadership and listened to their people. Speaking of Chiang Kai-shek and, um, and uh, the, Sung, the Sung family, uh, he married into the uh, Sung family. They come, uh, it's just unbelievable. They come across as incredibly corrupt. Uh, I mean, uh, as, and as, as I was reading what, what in your chapters, it reminded me of the Philippines, you know, President Marcos and Ukraine's President Zelensky today, you know, who are, who are often, well, at least in my circles are called, you know, Mr. 10% because they took a 10% cut on, on all the business being done in the country. How bad was it, and what percent of the U.S. loans and gifts ended up in their bank accounts? Nobody knows. Um, Truman said that these were just crooks surrounding FDR, and that they stole, and Chiang Kai-shek and the Song family, which he married into, he either married into them or they captured him. You know, you can make the argument. But uh, they were, look at FDR, just think, you know, listeners, think of the amount of money we spent on the atom bomb. The atom bomb was $2 billion in $1940, an unbelievable, you know, hundreds of thousands of people worked on the atom bomb all across the United States. We gave Chiang Kai-shek through the Song family more money than when you spent on the atom bomb. People don't realize that. I mean, listeners, think of this. We give this terrible dictator, Chiang Kai-shek, more money than we spent on the atom bomb. And then this loser, we support him in the Chinese Civil War. The Chinese Civil War just got erased out of American history somehow. I mean, it, it, you know, we know about Vietnam, but the Chinese Civil War was like a pre-Vietnam. We were on the wrong side. The Chinese people did not want Chiang Kai-shek. He was a completely corrupt Zelensky. It's a repeat. The Chinese Civil War is a repeat of what we're doing in Ukraine. Look at up north. There's a terrible commie named Putin. No, his name's Mao. Oh, look, here's a Democrat called Chiang. No, his name is Zelensky. You know, it's the same propaganda, the same corruption. And, uh, and we did it first in a big way in the Chinese Civil War. Well, that led us to being on the wrong side in the Korean War. And then that led us to be on the wrong side in the Vietnam War. So the China Mirage is not just about, you know, a few dollars going wayward in uh, China in the 1930s. It's about millions of people dying. It's about my dad having to fight on Iwo Jima. It's about my brother being shot 
in Vietnam. And all of this was because FDR was bamboozled in the 1930s as the American people were. Yeah, Chiang, Chiang Kai-shek, another thing that I really uh, appreciated because it confirms every, all of my research, that how Chiang Kai-shek, who was nominally supposed to be fighting the, <clears throat> the Japanese, was in fact doing everything he could to avoid taking on the Japanese. And he was, he was so obsessed with destroying the communists uh, he called them bandits, and and you know we kill that we wipe out the bandits first, and then we go to well, then we go after the Japanese, and and what that meant was that Mao uh, and the Red Army had to fight two uh, anti-fascist uh, fronts: the KMT, Chiang Kai-shek's uh, 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 army, and Japan. So that being that being the case, how did Mao and company win the war? I mean, it seems almost miraculous. They won the war the same way the Vietnamese did, people's war. If you have the people on your side in Asia, you know, you've got intelligence nets. You've got uh, generals getting messages in, uh, you know, women, women with vegetable baskets on their heads walking to market. And underneath those vegetables are, are coded messages for a general over the next hill. You've got the people uh, throwing grenades at American bases. I mean, you know, people's war. The the Americans lo like looked at Vietnam. We've got an air base here, got an air base there. We got this, we got that, we got Saigon secure. Well, the Vietnamese looked at it as we have the Americans surrounded. You know, the population is surrounding all these bases. And when they're sleeping, we're gonna throw some grenades and gasoline at their planes. I mean, you know, people's war. So Mao, you know, Mao had the people on his side and uh, Ho Chi Minh had the people on his side and you just can't beat that. It doesn't matter how much power you have. Well spoken. Uh, uh, one last thing I'd like to, to ask you about because I have read this on a number of occasions that there are some historians who contend that FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was hoping, in fact, it would, in other words, contradicting what you wrote, that Japan would attack the U.S. to get the economy back on a war footing since the New Deal had run out of gas and the country was falling into recession. And uh, the story goes that... Uh, that they knew there was going to be an airstrike, but they thought it would be, probably be Guam. And they were shocked that the Japanese made it all the way to Pearl Harbor. Your comments on that and where, and how, and, and what, what evidence are they using to come up with that? Well, here, can you narrow the question? I mean, is are you asking about Guam? Are you asking about just no, narrowly? This is a large area. So what are you asking? I'm asking is the that some historians say that FDR knew the Japanese were going to uh, attack the United States in the Pacific and that he was hoping it would happen because the New Deal, uh, the, the, the U.S. economy was faltering and going into recession and he needed he needed a war in order to uh, revive the economy. 
And so okay. that's the question. Well, I mean, you can't find any proof to that. So right now in Congress, you can hear Congress people talk about the 2016 Russian hack and dump of the DNC. Well, there was no Russian hack, but you can hear Congress people and you know it, it, news people talk about the Russian hack of the DNC. There was no hack. The computer experts have testified that there was no hack. There is zero evidence, but it's been repeated so much that it, you know, it just gets repeated. There is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that FDR was anticipating an attack from Japan. He did not want war with Japan. It, 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 just before they cut the oil without his knowledge, he made a public speech to explain that we're going to continue to sell the oil to Japan so there will not be a war. In terms of getting the economy going, he was planning a war with Hitler. Japan was looked at as like a little mite, as a little tiny thing that he didn't have to deal with because they were absorbed with China. So the idea he'd want war with Japan to stimulate the economy, no, 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 no. He was supplying uh, Moscow with arms. Look at the size of Russia. Look at the troops in, in, uh, in Nazi Germany. So in terms of economic stimulus, he had all he needed over in Europe. And Roosevelt was with Churchill. Roosevelt wasn't in California planning war against Japan with the Navy. He was with Churchill planning war in Europe. In terms of his foreknowledge of Pearl Harbor, it's just like the Russian hack. It's repeated all the time. But when you use the word historians, really? Could you send me the evidence and the footnotes that they have? Because I've, I've been asked this question hundreds of times in my public speaking career, and I've not, no one has ever shown me any evidence. In Flyboys, I do a deep dive on what the US did know. What they did know is that the Japanese were getting excited and that they were going to attack somewhere. And the attack they thought was to go south uh, <clears throat> to Malaysia what was in Malaya, to Malaysia. And you know what? Eight hours after Pearl Harbor, they did go to Malaysia. But the, 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 the uh, aircraft carriers that Yamamoto sent out to hit Pearl Harbor went out completely secretly and were a surprise. So, you know, radar was supposed to pick up airplanes, right? Do you know the first guys that saw enemy airplanes through radar? The very first time in history was at Pearl Harbor. They looked at the Japanese planes coming in and they looked at each other and said, oh, this must be you know, some uh, American planes coming in from an exercise. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. They didn't even, they saw the Japanese planes on the radar and didn't even warn anybody because it was just so far-fetched. There was no warning that this was gonna happen. So Roosevelt was taken by surprise, and uh, people repeat the idea that he knew in advance, but there's no proof. Well, thank you for that clarification. Well, James, this has been, well, first off, thank you for inspiring, after, after we did our show about um, JFK and Nixon and Trump all being um, disposed of, and and we started talking about, you know, 
FDR. I, I dug out your book, you know, from my collection and, and read those chapters again, and it's incredibly informative. I really, if you, if if anybody out there it has has interest in China, and and its role in modern history uh, from the 19th century on, I really really recommend uh, reading Imperial Cruise um, and the China Mirage. If you're more interested in World War II, the the, the Pacific Theater, then definitely Flags of Our Fathers and Flyboys. Most likely, because James is a very successful writer, those books are probably in your public library. But if they're not, ask your librarian to 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 order to order them because librarians love people to make love the public to make recommendations, and they love ordering books for people to stock the library. So you don't even have to buy it. Just buy them. Just go to the library, and they'll do it for you. And then you can read them, and everybody else in your in your town or your neighborhood can too. So, um, uh, James, this has been incredibly informative. American libraries, the New Zealand libraries, the English libraries—they're in the yeah. chain libraries. They're in the Taiwanese libraries. So they've been translated into a number of different languages. I, and, didn't, know, I didn't know that. Oh yeah. Oh no. The Taiwanese translated. Uh, um the china mirage and and it's also translated in beijing two chinese translations of both those books the imperial cruise hmm. china mirage but i want to say on this day you know i was uh i was 20 years old about to go around the world uh in 1975 and i remember seeing you know saigon fall and we, and in America, we say the fall of Saigon in the Vietnam War. And the Vietnamese say the liberation of uh, Saigon in the American War. So, <laughs> different way of looking at it. And I want to say, as I sign off here, JB East, I want to say happy birthday to JB West, who's 70, who's 69 years old today. Yeah, don't call me 70 yet. I've got one more year. <laughs> So happy this, birthday, and we'll talk when you're in China in uh, uh, soon. This is JB uh, West in uh, France. Uh, thank you, James. Bye-bye.